the French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 53, The Advance of France. In the last four main episodes, we examined the trial and execution of King Louis XVI. The proceedings dominated the agenda in Paris for almost two months, and the twists and turns of the case were as numerous as the judges. Yet, as important as the former king was, time waits for no man. While the deputies of the convention were consumed with the king's trial, a lot was occurring outside of Paris. In fact, a lot is going to continue to occur outside the capital, and for the next several episodes, we're going to be taking a slightly different approach to the show. As a general rule, the podcast is relatively chronological in how it handles events. At times, the revolution allows me to take this straightforward approach. An event happens, which triggers a new event, which then facilitates yet another development. But between the King's trial and a rather important event in mid-1793, a lot is going to happen in the French Revolution. We're about to hit everything from treasonous plots to civil wars, military defeats to new social movements, and so it doesn't make sense to cover all of this fascinating chaos in chronological order. So we're going to be tackling the next few episodes thematically, starting with the advance of France. I've put a behind-the-scenes video explaining the rough outline for the next half a dozen episodes on Patreon for those that are interested, but today we will be kicking off with a focus on the revolutionary armies. In particular, we'll be taking off from where we last left them at the end of episode 43, the invasion of France. After a brief recap of French military victories, we'll unpack the decision to annex multiple occupied territories before specifically focusing on the occupation of Belgium. This will allow us to explore not only the mess that was unleashed in the Austrian Netherlands, but also the tensions within and between both the French government and its army in the field. From here, we'll be able to set up for episode 54. It's treason then, which will, amongst other things, cover the entry of England and Holland into the war and some rather interesting shenanigans in the French army. That episode is already available to patrons with early access. So there is a lot of grey history coming your way, and I cannot wait to bring you all the fascinating events of 1793. A reminder that if you're enjoying grey history, if you're finding it entertaining, if you're finding it educational, then I need your help to keep going. As a thank you for supporting the show, you'll not only receive my eternal gratitude, but access to six full-length bonus episodes and dozens of episode extras. Many patrons have written in about how much they're loving the miniseries on the Corsican Revolution, and the episode extras which accompany the main episodes offer everything from new details and perspectives 
to my unscripted thoughts on the events discussed. So please, for just $2 a main episode, for just half a cup of coffee, I need your help to keep grey history on the air. I am determined to bring you all the fascinating craziness of 1793, but I won't be able to do it without your help. Speaking of help from some amazing individuals, it's time to introduce the newest members of the Grey History community. It's been a couple of months since the last main narrative episode, which means there's a few awesome people that I need to introduce. A warm welcome to the newest virtuous citizens of the show, Zach, Ben, Monica, Michelle, Barbara, John, Nick, Naomi, Matthew, Bracky, Antoine, Marion, Monster, Garrett, Sonia, and Richard C. An additional warm welcome to the newest true revolutionaries, Adrian, Graham, Florian, Victoria, and Richard W. Also, a thank you to Daniel for increasing his pledge and becoming a true revolutionary. Another warm welcome to Susan, who not only wrote in some very kind words, but joins the fantastic champions of the people, Cynthia, George, Brady, Tim, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, and Joel. Finally, thank you to the amazingly generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, and Charles. Anyway, that's enough from me. So please, if you're enjoying Grey History, come join the awesome community on Patreon. And now, let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 53... The Advance of France. No one likes armed missionaries. That was the succinct warning of Maximilien Robespierre as he rallied against proposals for a revolutionary war. A war which Robespierre viewed as ill-considered and ill-advised, but a war which was commenced nonetheless. Yet, for all of Robespierre's doubts, for all of his concerns, as the end of 1792 approached, it wasn't clear that there was any truth in his now off-quoted line. This conflict was not like any other. It was, to use the language of Robespierre's detractors, a crusade for universal liberty. And in this crusade, it appeared that perhaps some people did like armed missionaries. Perhaps those who marched for universal liberty were the exception to the rule. To recap where we last left the revolutionary armies, the military fortunes of France had undergone a tremendous transformation in the final months of 1792. In August, the seemingly unstoppable Prussian advance threatened to completely destroy the revolutionary project. It was the imminent threat of Brunswick and his coalition army which had helped to trigger both the overthrow of the monarchy and, weeks later, the gruesome September massacres. But after the heroic Battle of Valmy, a battle which 
realistically was little more than a glorified staring contest with cannons, the Prussian momentum all but evaporated. In an unexpected reversal of the previous months, it was now the French who were on the offensive. It was now the time for the advance of France. The following weeks were littered with victories. In the southeast, General Montesquieu pushed into Savoy, a region just south of Geneva, which was then part of the Kingdom of Sardinia. Today, part of modern-day France, the defenders were thoroughly routed, and success in the south was soon bolstered by the occupation of the county of Nice. However, the Kingdom of Sardinia was not the only regional power suffering losses of both territory and men. Further north, the French armies had equally impressive gains in the Rhineland. Over the course of just a few weeks, a series of important German towns and cities fell to the self-styled liberators. In short succession, the revolution's soldiers marched into Worms, Speyer, Mainz and even Frankfurt. Suddenly, French armies seemed poised to pierce the Germanic heart of the Holy Roman Empire itself. Yet the gains of the fledgling republic were still more numerous. Most importantly, the French army had monumental success in modern-day Belgium. Led by the former foreign minister de Maurier, the hero of Valmy proved himself once again. At the Battle of Jemap on the 6th of November, de Maurier defeated a much smaller Austrian force. De Maurier's numerical superiority hardly stopped the propagandists nor the practical implications. The local Austrian forces were vanquished from the field, and all of Belgium lay open. Within days, Brussels, Antwerp, and the neighbouring Prince Bishopric of Liège had all been occupied. Once again, de Maurier had proved himself to be the true hero of the Republic, one superior to the disgraced Marquis de Lafayette, who now wasted away in an enemy dungeon after his failed march against Paris in the wake of the overthrow of the monarchy. An act of immense treason that the heroic de Maurier would never, ever, ever, under any circumstance, commit himself. Nope. It's just not going to happen. It was during these stunning successes that Robespierre's words seemed to ring hollow. Sure, enthusiasm for the revolution varied from region to region. Sure, some occupied lands were more enthusiastic than others. But in many locations, it was clear that there was at least some level of non insignificant support for the arrival of the French. In the Rhineland, for example, the revolutionaries received a warm reception in some parts. South of Frankfurt, there were distinct pockets of support near Heidelberg, Mannheim, Speyer and Worms, many of which were places which had seen pro-revolutionary activities and agitation prior to the war. Further north, the liberators were also greeted warmly in the German city of Aachen which had been enduring its own political crisis for the last several years. Aachen had been the location where dozens of German kings had been crowned in the Middle Ages. It was one of the favourite residences 
of the great Frankish king Charlemagne, and so I'm sure the symbolism of this conquest was not lost on anyone. Nearby, the modern Belgian city of Liège was particularly enthusiastic to greet the French armies. Then an independent prince bishopric, separate to the Austrian Netherlands, Liège had been a bastion for the émigré leaders and the repressive policies of the counter-enlightenment. The retreat of the French émigrés was a cause for celebration, and before long, clubs, assemblies and liberty trees sprouted in the freshly liberated principality. The celebrations were similar in Brussels, where more than 2,000 Belgian exiles had marched with the French to liberate the territorial capital. Crowds shouted, Long live the French! Long live our liberators! as both the French and Belgian Democrats arrived. Interestingly, these crowds did so in Dutch, not French, as back in 1792, Brussels was primarily Dutch-speaking. French was not yet the dominant language, but its rise would be helped in part by the future French occupation throughout the Revolutionary Wars. Anyway, I digress. Perhaps the most notable welcomers of the French troops were the inhabitants of Savoy, who eagerly demanded annexation. Wasting no time at all, the region south of Geneva requested incorporation into France after a local assembly promptly abolished their old regime. In short, throughout October and November 1792, it appeared that Robespierre was wrong. Not only did some people like armed missionaries, but there were even those who welcomed them with open arms. But all this liberating came at a cost, literally. The French Revolution had been caused, in no small part, by a bankruptcy crisis, and despite all the recent military success, the bills were piling up. Back in Paris, the convention grappled with how to pay for the immediate costs of the war. A war which hadn't even ventured that far beyond the frontiers. On the 10th of December 1792, the day before the king made his first appearance before the National Convention during his trial, one member of the Finance Committee made it clear that the war effort was financially unsustainable. The respected Deputy Cambon outlined the problem to his colleagues. The more we penetrate enemy territory, the more ruinously expensive the war becomes, especially given our philosophical principles and our generous idealism. He went on to say, It is constantly said that we are taking liberty to our neighbours. We are also taking our coin and our provisions, and they will not even accept our assignat. With money, not to mention supplies and manpower running low, the convention had to figure out how to pay for all this liberating. It's here that financial considerations helped to drive the nation towards a policy of expanding the revolution. Upon the arrival of French troops, the convention received various calls from the occupied territories for annexation. These calls met with a variety of responses within the convention. 
while Savoy was annexed in November with only one dissenting vote. Its close links to France and arguments of popular sovereignty helped mollify opposition. After all, the locals had eagerly voted in favour of union with France. Surely the revolution had to respect the wishes of popular sovereignty. But the case for incorporating other regions was far less clear. Some deputies were horrified at the idea of greatly expanding France, arguing that this was absolutely not a war of conquest similar to those waged by monarchs of previous eras. The foreign minister, Labras, for example, warned his countrymen not to take advantage of the first burst of enthusiasm that leads towards annexation. Labra, in particular, was keen to limit any expansion of the war, and he saw annexation as a threat to this objective. From his perspective, the annexation of territory near France risked angering neutral states, and potentially encouraged them into joining an alliance with Austria. Others, however, disagreed with this stance entirely. They pointed to all sorts of rationale in favour of annexation and French expansionism. One argument in favour was championed by Danton. Danton passionately championed the idea of expanding France's frontiers to what he called its natural borders. These natural borders, which weren't very natural at all, were bound by the Pyrenees Mountains to the southwest and the Alps and the Rhine River to the east. Conveniently for Danton and those who supported him, many of the newly occupied regions fell within France's so-called natural frontiers, and so the case for annexation was both simple and compelling, at least according to those in favour. Others supported annexation, but did so for alternative reasons. Some argued, for example, that annexation was the best way to protect the peoples of the newly liberated regions, and made the case that only through their incorporation into France could their continued liberty be ensured. Thus, annexation wasn't about expanding French borders, but rather expanding the liberty, equality and justice that the revolution had brought to France. And this sort of reasoning brings us to an interesting observation by historian Albert Saboul. Saboul notes that the revolution's propaganda and the case for annexation were integrally bound together. On the 19th of November, 1792, the convention had decreed that it extended fraternal feelings and aid to all peoples who may wish to regain their liberty. Furthermore, it had instructed French generals to help these peoples and defend those fighting for the cause of liberty. Well, if one's goal was to aid and defend, some made the case that the best way that this was to be done was by incorporating these peoples into France. What other method would be superior to ensuring their liberties than joining the land of the free? Historian Albert Sabul writes, The war of annexation developed quite naturally out of the propaganda war, for in calling upon the peoples of Europe to revolt, the convention was also undertaking to offer them protection. And what better form of protection could there be than that of annexation?
With multiple forces supporting a policy of annexation, the territorial expansion of France commenced with Savoy in late November. The annexations continued over the next few months, with Nice, Basel, the Rhineland and Belgium all eventually being incorporated. But we are getting a little ahead of ourselves, and I want to focus on developments in one occupied region in particular. Of course, there will be no prizes for guessing that these oh-so-generous acts of territorial expansion were occasionally met with hostility. Perhaps nowhere was as problematic for the revolutionaries as Belgium, but the truth of the matter is that relations between the Belgians and the French had deteriorated well before the territory's eventual annexation in early 1793. In fact, things started to go south pretty much from day one. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. To back up a bit, even before the Revolutionary War had commenced, the war lobby within France had been fixated on Belgium. Back in 1792, Belgium was not an independent nation. Instead, much of modern-day Belgium, as well as modern-day Luxembourg, were part of what was then called the Austrian Netherlands, a collection of territories governed by Austria. From October 1789 until late 1790, the Austrian Netherlands had undergone the Brabant Revolution, an event which briefly created the United States of Belgium. This year-long revolution was eventually crushed by Austrian soldiers, but it had demonstrated the revolutionary potential of the territory. As such, the French revolutionaries hoped to use this to their advantage, with many seeing an opportunity to expand the revolution's influence Through the establishment of a friendly Republican client state, the French anticipated that the welcome mat would be rolled out upon their arrival. Boy, were they wrong. By the time the French armies controlled Belgium in November 1792, just a casual six months behind schedule, the reception the French received was mixed. Yes, 
The welcome in the neighbouring Prince Bishopric of Liège was enthusiastic enough. Yes, favourable cries could even be heard throughout the Belgian territories as well, including in Brussels. But it was soon clear that tensions were emerging between the liberators and the liberated. In fact, tensions might be underselling the problem. The cause of the soon deteriorating situation in Belgium was itself south of the border. On the 15th of December, the convention issued its famous December Decree, which established revolutionary administration in occupied lands. The actual substance of this decree was relatively simple, even if it had monumental consequences. Attempting to revolutionise the newly occupied regions, the deputies swept aside local governments and disbanded the previous regimes. Almost every aspect of society was overturned. Nobility, privileges, taxes and traditional institutions were all abolished, just as they had been in France. In their place, the convention decreed the establishment of revolutionary administrations. In short, these territories were now essentially governed by the French National Convention, and the convention had every intention of exporting the revolution whether the inhabitants wanted it or not. Now, this might not seem like a terrible development. Sure, the changes were significant, but were they not popular? After all, the inhabitants of Savoy had unilaterally abolished their own old regime, and the abolition of privileges and other feudal practices was bound to be a vote winner with many commoners. Well, that may be true, but the enforcement of all revolutionary policies included the application of those which were far more contentious than the suppression of feudalism. Most notably, it included a whole host of very divisive policies concerning one of, if not the, most important facets of people's lives. Of course, I am referring to the revolution's religious reforms. By this point in time, the revolution was actively pursuing non-constitutional priests, those members of the clergy which had refused to abide by the government's reforms and swear an oath of loyalty to the constitution. Many clerics had fled France, while others were forced into hiding, and some unfortunate few had been imprisoned, including those who met their end in the bloody prison massacres of September. Combined with the forced closure of monasteries, the nationalisation of church property, and reforms to all aspects of the church's administration, the revolution had essentially declared war on the Catholic Church. And that was slightly problematic, because if there was one thing that the Belgians liked, besides beer and urinating statues, it was the Catholic Church. As a quick aside, the famous mannequin piss statue in Brussels, the one of the small boy peeing, the original statue was actually installed in 1619. So, little mannequin witnessed the French invasion, as well as the complete shit show that I'm about to describe. When news reached Brussels that France would unilaterally impose constitutional and religious reforms on Belgium, the unrest was immediate. But to understand this unrest and why it was immediate, 
we do need to briefly explore Belgium's recent history. The Austrian Netherlands was one of the most Catholic regions of Europe, and in a bad omen for the French, the Belgians had experience in violently resisting any encroachment on what was perceived to be their traditional rights and institutions. In fact, a key contributor to the Brabant Revolution of 1789 was opposition to Austrian-imposed reforms. Far from a radical revolution seeking to implement Enlightenment-inspired ideas, historian Robert Palmer claims that the Brabant Revolution was conservative in origin, seeking to protect traditional rights, privileges and constitutional practices from imperial reforms which were inspired by the Enlightenment. This is important because the revolutionary faction which eventually came to dominate the United States of Belgium was staunchly conservative in its outlook. Being staunchly conservative, this faction, the so-called statists, backed the power and position of the territory's traditional estates. This included the wealth, the privileges and the prerogatives of both the Catholic Church and its clergy. Any policy perceived to be endangering the position of Catholicism within society was rejected outright. Now, to give an example of what this meant, the well-meaning Austrians had made the terrible mistake of attempting to open up public offices to non-Catholics. This proposal soon became one of the many rallying cries for the Belgian rebels. And despite the Brabant Revolution being crushed at the end of 1790 by Austrian forces, the statists still enjoyed widespread support in Belgian society by the time of the French occupation two years later. So, given the response to the comparatively mild Austrian reforms, and given the widespread support of the staunchly conservative and pro-Catholic statist faction, you can imagine the kind of reaction that was elicited from the Belgian population when the French announced they planned to let the Belgians do what they want in the spirit of self-determination and popular sovereignty and... Oh wait, no, that, that's not it at all. Let's try that again. Given the response to the comparatively mild Austrian reforms, and given the widespread popular support of the staunchly conservative and pro-Catholic statist faction, you can imagine the kind of reaction that was elicited from the Belgian population when the French announced they planned to forcibly introduce the brutal castration of the Catholic Church. Forget allowing Protestants to hold public office, the December Decree facilitated the introduction of all of France's controversial religious reforms in Belgium. Going forward, Protestants, atheists, and even Muslims would be allowed to elect local Catholic priests. Furthermore, the authorities could force the closure of monasteries and other religious orders, while simultaneously abolishing the feudal rights and privileges of church estates. Finally, these reforms imprisoned priests who refused to disobey the Pope. They required them to swear sacrilegious oaths, and perhaps most importantly, the December Decree enabled the nationalisation and sale of church property. The December Decree was thus a red rag to a bull, 
and before long, the Belgians were marching in the streets. No equality, no new laws, we want our estates, we want our old constitution and nothing else. These were the cries of agitators who rallied around the traditional three estates and demanded the protection of not only the priesthood and nobility, but also the prominent place of Catholicism in society. These demands were heard not just in the streets, but in the primary assemblies as well, adding democratic and popular legitimacy to the fast-forming opposition. Despite being told to swear an oath to uphold equality and liberty, every single one of Brussels' 22 city sections refused to do so. From the perspective of the revolutionary occupiers, the situation was rapidly deteriorating. Before long, Belgian Democrats and French soldiers were being attacked in the streets, not only at night, but during the day as well. Speeches and pamphlets implored locals to protect their traditional institutions, and most importantly, to protect their priests. By the end of December, local assemblies across Belgium had all lodged protests to the National Convention in Paris, including assemblies in Antwerp, Bruges and Ypres. The French had been greeted as liberators just weeks before, but with sentiment firming against any interference in constitutional and religious matters, it was fast becoming clear that maybe, just maybe, Robespierre was right. No one likes armed missionaries. With the situation in Belgium fast transforming from favourable to anything but, one worried French onlooker wrote to the French Minister of Foreign Affairs. The author of this impudent decree must have known nothing about Belgium and its inhabitants. He probably ignored that this obstinate and warlike people withstood an 80-year war against the kings of Spain who had infringed upon their rights. Sharing the concerns of this contemporary were some prominent members of the National Convention. Just three days after the December Decree's passage, Marat asked what right the French had to force the Belgians to adopt laws they did not want. Two months later, Robespierre warned of the dangers of wounding popular sentiments, cautioning that such actions could endanger the interests of mankind. By February, however, this warning was a tad too late. Of course, the impotent nature of the December decree is a matter of perspective, and the French government had its justifications for enacting these controversial measures. Firstly, Financial considerations played a part, as these reforms allowed the government to do several things. With revolutionary administration established, the French could seize church property, as well as that which belonged to others deemed counter-revolutionary. The nationalised assets could then be used to fund the war effort, and the implementation of revolutionary government also facilitated the payment of much-needed supplies with revolutionary assignat. Few wanted to take payment in the revolutionary paper currency, but now Belgian businesses had little choice but to take the assignats with a smile. In addition to financial considerations, 
the decree ensured a uniform approach to the governance of the occupied territories. Prior to the reforms, the French armies, and in particular their commanders, had more or less done whatever the hell they wanted. Some officers encouraged their troops to vigorously live off the land, aggressively forcing loans from local inhabitants while eagerly implementing revolutionary policies. Others pursued far more gentle techniques, seeking to raise voluntary contributions and foster pro-revolutionary sentiments rather than instantly reaching for the big stick. This divergence in approach was seen as problematic in Paris, and so the December Decree allowed the Convention to ensure that its decisions would be the ones implemented on the ground. This was something that some deputies were particularly keen to ensure occurred in Belgium, where General de Maurier seemed to be adopting a rather light-hearted and less-than-pure approach to the revolution's governance of Belgium. In fact, historian Simon Sharma claims that the December Decree was expressly aimed at thwarting de Maurier's autonomous policy by subjecting his authority to the Convention's representatives. This stance is supported by the language of some deputies, including Cambon, who we heard from just before on the financial issues posed by the war. Cambon warned the Convention in November of the risks of successful and popular generals, and therefore called for the introduction of strict rules to limit their power and independence in the occupied territories. The deputies, steeped in knowledge of ancient Rome, were all too aware of how the late Republic had been menaced by popular commanders who were too independent from the Senate. The deputies were thus wary of any risk of military dictatorship, and the December Decree allowed them to claim clear jurisdiction over the occupied territories as well as the practices of the occupying troops. However, historian Simon Sharma states that the Convention was specifically trying to thwart the autonomous policies of de Maurier, not just implement sound policy against the broader threat of military shenanigans. And that specificity is important. Now, you may be asking yourself, why was the Convention concerned about the actions of the Republic's new favourite war hero? I mean, the man had done the impossible at Valmy, only to do it again in conquering Belgium. What could the deputies possibly have to fear? Well, that is a great question, and we'll be returning to it shortly. With Belgium now a mess, by the start of 1793, de Maurier had to try to clean things up. You see, unrest in Belgium was problematic for two key reasons. Firstly, de Maurier was hoping to create an independent republican regime in Belgium. This would further advance the interests of the revolution and its principles, as well as create a friendly buffer state between France and its enemies. Of course, this could hardly be achieved when the locals had suddenly become far more interested in pitchforks than polling stations, and in barricades than ballots. As a result, de Maurier had to find a way to ease tensions between the French and the Belgians. In addition to his political objectives, the growing unrest in Belgium 
threatened Du Maurier's military plans. Du Maurier wanted to invade the Dutch Republic. The United Provinces, as it was officially called, had experienced its own revolution and civil war in recent years, and it was only thanks to Prussian military intervention that the regime of the Stadtholder had survived. With the Prussians in full retreat, and Dutch Democrats readying for a round two, Du Maurier spotted an opportunity. Seizing much of the modern-day Netherlands would create another friendly regime for the French Republic. Furthermore, the significant wealth of Holland and the other Dutch provinces could be used to finance the French war effort. Toppling the Stadtholder, which was the official term for the nation's prince, would both remove Prussian influence as well as eliminate the key continental ally of England. Of course, England would never stand for it, but de Maurier believed he could seize the whole of the country before the English even had the opportunity to put the kettle away. However, Belgium was now looking like it might revolt, and the last thing de Maurier could do was invade what some called the Upper Netherlands, only to have the Lower Netherlands, aka Belgium, break out in open rebellion. Furthermore, the war hero could hardly leave a significant portion of his army behind to garrison occupied Austrian territory, as it would be needed further north in liberating the Dutch. In short, the policies of the National Convention not only enraged the Belgians, but it threw a giant spanner in the works of de Maurier's diplomatic and military plans. Something had to be done. As such, the former foreign minister went to Paris to try to sort everything out. Arriving in the capital, the general had four key objectives, all of which were designed to pursue his goals of an independent revolutionary Belgium and a freshly liberated Holland. Firstly, de Maurier wanted the repeal of the inflammatory December decree. Secondly, he wanted to expand the war and sought permission to invade the United Provinces. Thirdly, de Maurier demanded the right to supply his men as he saw fit, without having to conform to the wishes of the centralised directory of purchases. Finally, de Maurier wanted the war minister Pash fired. Now, we're going to unpack these in reverse order starting with de Maurier's beef with Pache and why he insisted on supplying his own men. Initially associated with the Girondin faction, Pache had been named Minister of War in October 1792. A former subordinate of the Girondin interior minister Roland, the Girondins perceived Pache to be a hard-working moderate and eagerly raised him into the ministry. The Jacobins didn't object. Sensing, correctly, that perhaps this Girondin was actually more sympathetic to their own cause. Upon being installed as minister, it indeed became clear that Pache was far more aligned with the mountain, and many historians remark as to how the war ministry soon became the domain of Montagnard-aligned revolutionaries. Fast becoming the most prominent Jacobin in the ministry, Pache and his former mentor Roland would soon lock heads, with both factions rallying around their man in the Executive Council. 
the Executive Council, of course, being the body of ministers, which had replaced the king as the executive of the nation after the overthrow of the monarchy. Now, Pasha's embrace of all things Jacobin wasn't enough for him to collide with de Maurier. No, as war minister, Pasch decided to pursue two significant policy objectives that put him on a direct collision course with the general, and it's this that we need to explore. Firstly, in terms of future military operations, Pasch favoured focusing on the Rhineland. Ignoring the Dutch Republic completely, Pasch saw opportunities with the recent success of the Army of the Rhine. With Frankfurt already occupied, Pasch wanted to pierce the heart of what is today modern-day Germany. By crossing the Rhine and focusing on the retreating Prussians, success could potentially coerce them into signing an armistice. With the Prussians relegated to the sidelines, the French would successfully isolate Austria and potentially convince it to come to the negotiating table as well. Furthermore, by leaving the United Provinces alone, England wouldn't necessarily join the war, something they were bound to do if their Dutch ally was attacked. Thus, Pasch saw the Rhineland as a win-win-win, and some members of the army were supportive of this idea. But, focusing on the heart of the Holy Roman Empire would rob de Maurier of his time in the sun, not to mention deprioritize his grand plans for both an independent Belgium and a freshly liberated Holland. This alone would have been enough for friction between the minister and the general. But strategic differences weren't everything. Before Pasch came to office, de Maurier had been responsible for supplying his own men. These supplies, everything from shoes to blankets and tents to horse feed, were all critical for a well-functioning army. As per tradition, de Maurier was originally responsible for organising these supplies for his soldiers. In an unorthodox approach, de Maurier had decided to do this in such a way which also supported his diplomatic and political objectives. Seeking to gain goodwill with the Belgian people, de Maurier prevented his men from simply requisitioning what they needed. Instead of seizing goods, the general made a big show and dance of helping the Belgian economy by signing contracts with local suppliers. The commander believed that by boosting the Belgian economy, by creating jobs directly tied to the French occupation, these actions would encourage the local inhabitants to view the French favourably. With time, they would also come round to supporting the liberal ideas the French represented. In short, de Maurier believed that a key way to solidify a democratic Belgian republic was by boosting the local economy with the purchases of the Army of Liberty. But Minister Pasch had other ideas. All of this was very expensive, because de Maurier was paying in cold hard cash, and not assignats, as no sensible Belgian wanted to accept the French paper currency. Furthermore, while this policy might have been great for the Belgians, what about the French? Was it not the duty of the French government to ensure the success of its own industries? Was it not the duty of the French government to ensure employment 
or its own citizens. Combined with concerns in the convention that de Maurier's autonomous policies were providing him too much independence from Paris, there was appetite in the capital for a different approach. Thus, Minister Pache, along with other ministers, created the Directory of Purchases, a central agency charged with supplying all the French armies with critical supplies. Through organising the needs of the various armies from Paris, the military could stimulate the French economy, minimise corruption, ensure value for money, and rein in the independence of the military. At least, it would do all of this in theory. The shoes, the coats, the blankets, the tents, they didn't really materialise. The fact of the matter was that this directory of purchases became little more than the directory of broken promises. Failing to live up to expectations, its inability to deliver key goods and supplies had real consequences for the men on the front lines. So, Pash had centralised the purchasing of supplies, he had even refused to honour the contracts de Maurier had signed, and yet, when it came to actually delivering the goods, the minister provided two-fifths of nothing. As a result, the minister's creation of the Directory of Purchases and the perceptions of incompetence which followed opened up another rift in the fast-emerging conflict with de Maurier. From the perspective of the general, the war ministry was frustrating his brilliant plans for both the Upper and Lower Netherlands, while his troops were suffering as they were left deprived of basic goods. Goods which he could no longer source himself because of the ministry's interference and the convention's restrictions. Adversely affecting everything from his under-resourced troops to his overinflated ego, de Maurier had had enough. The minister needed to go. Now, we have gone down a rabbit hole just a little bit, but our brief excursion into the Pache de Maurier feud is about to make a lot of sense. Although de Maurier eventually succeeds in getting the minister dismissed and his centralised directory of purchases disbanded, the general didn't solve all of his Pash-related problems. Having turned the war office into a refuge for Jacobin-friendly revolutionaries and having been the mountain's main man in the ministry, Pash had strong connections to the Montagnards. Critically, Although Danton wasn't heartbroken to see him dismissed, another influential Jacobin was. That individual was none other than everyone's favourite radical journalist, Jean-Paul Marat. Marat, as well as others in the mountain, had already detested de Maurier for months. Even in the opening weeks of the war, Marat had denounced the then foreign minister as the instrument and protector of the Brissoans. De Maurier's victory at Valmy and his refusal to collude with the now traitorous Lafayette hardly earned him a reprieve. Many in the mountain continued to view de Maurier with suspicion, associating him with the Girondins and thus with their various plots and schemes. Of course, we know that de Maurier's personal politics was far closer to that of the Fillons. In fact, he was even feuding with Roland and other leading Girondins in the final months of 1792. But even though he wasn't really a Girondin, de Maurier could hardly embrace his true sympathies 
as a constitutional monarchist, which loathed the increasing radicalism of the revolution. Thus, the general had little room to move politically, and Du Maurier could hardly differentiate himself from the Girondins, who he had allowed himself to become politically tied to. Now, where I'm going with all of this is that even before being dismissed from the war ministry, the Pache de Maurier feud, and to a much greater extent, the Pache Roland feud, begins to emerge as yet another fault line between the Montagnards and the Girondins. On the last day of 1792, Murat proclaimed that he had evidence that the Roland faction, aka the Girondins, were undertaking a criminal scheme to destroy the honest and patriotic war minister Pache. Marat attacked de Maurier as part of his denunciations, meaning that even before de Maurier had succeeded in having Pache dismissed, the feud between the war minister and the war hero had already been incorporated into the broader factional struggles of the revolution. And to be clear, all of this is happening in the context of broader factional struggles. Throughout January 1793, the Executive Council was essentially consumed by the strife between the two factions, with the Girondin Interior Minister Roland and the Jacobin War Minister Pache being the two rallying points for each respective group. Depending on the contemporaries consulted, and depending on the sympathies of later historians, either man could be the hero or the villain, it just depends on who you ask. Anyway, I digress. Shifting our focus back to de Maurier in particular, what's important here is that elements of the radical wing of the convention were openly and increasingly attacking de Maurier even at the height of his military success. For these deputies, everything the general was trying to achieve was viewed with suspicion. Was he part of a Girondist plot? Was he part of an aristocratic plot? Was he planning his own plot, a military coup or something similar? After all, in the eyes of his political opponents, he had been rather lenient to those retreating Prussians in the aftermath of Valmy. Remember, some had accused de Maurier of secret negotiations or even taking Prussian bribes as his army rather lethargically shadowed the Duke of Brunswick as he retreated across the frontier. These were generally quiet suspicions, but in some cases they were becoming open accusations. Combined with the efforts to restrict de Maurier's autonomy in Belgium, all of this meant that by the start of 1793, there was growing hostility between the nation's most prominent military commander and some sections of the government he supposedly answered to. This increasing conflict between de Maurier and the radical elements of the capital was by no means an inconsequential development. In fact, this division and distrust would prove critically important. So, de Maurier eventually managed to achieve two of his four objectives. Pache was moved on, although that did take a while. In fact, both Pache and Roland eventually left the ministry, and it was hoped that the Jacobin and Girondin tensions would stop distracting the government upon their departure. Yeah, 
I rolled my eyes at that too. At this point in time, you've almost got better odds of the Jedi and the Sith burying the hatchet first, or the lightsaber in that case. Anywho, with Pash out the door, Demorier was allowed to supply his own troops as he saw fit, which was great, although Demorier had now been waiting months for his rather small request of 30,000 pairs of shoes and 25,000 blankets. But it's not like his men would have needed that over winter. Just don't ask them to confirm that. Now, with two out of his four goals achieved, what about the other two objectives of de Maurier's trip to Paris in January 1793? What about his efforts to lobby for his planned invasion of the Dutch Republic? And what about his proposed repeal of the Convention's December Decree, which expanded revolutionary administration into Belgium? On the topic of the invasion of Holland, de Maurier had terrible, and I mean terrible timing. For listeners who are very good with dates, you might have picked up that the general was making the case for the invasion right in the middle of the king's trial. What does this mean? Well, just before de Maurier sought permission to invade the Dutch Republic, Girondin deputies had broached the idea of the appeal to the people, the national referendum to determine the fate of the king. More importantly, some had started to argue that the king had to be spared in order to avoid expanding the war. Their contention was expanding the war would jeopardise the revolution's very existence and risk everything that it had achieved. So, what we have here is a situation where Girondin deputies are standing up in the convention and arguing against the expansion of the war, while the general most commonly associated with the Girondins is talking to the executive council, seeking to, oh, that's right, dramatically expand the war. De Maurier could argue all he liked, that the Upper Netherlands were ripe for liberation. He could claim that an imminent revolution in England would cripple her ability to respond. But the fact of the matter was that the Girondin-aligned general was demanding a dramatic expansion to the war at the very same moment that most Girondin deputies were arguing that such a development would be devastating to the Republic, and using that consequence as justification to keeping Louis's head attached to his body. This is the sort of nightmarish situation which haunts the dreams of all good communication managers and public relation professionals. This was a messaging fiasco. In fact, I'm not sure if de Maurier could have chosen a worse time to pop the question had he tried. As a result, the answer was no. De Maurier would not receive permission to attack the Dutch. At least, not yet. While the convention was consumed with the king's fate, while many deputies were forcefully campaigning on containing the foreign war, there would be no approval for an attack on Holland. War with the Dutch would have to wait. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. 
My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes, We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution Podcast. Imagine winning fame and fortune. That's what happened recently to Toby. Toby, a longtime supporter of the show, managed to win his team a round of free beer in pub trivia by answering a question designed to be near impossible. As difficult as it was, Toby was able to answer this question because he had listened to the fantastic episodes on the Corsican Revolution, just some of the many full-length bonus episodes available for patrons of the show. So, be like Toby. Support Grey History on Patreon and win the eternal admiration of your friends and family as you do the impossible and secure free drink for all. And if the prospect of acquiring fame and fortune doesn't tantalise you, how about early access? or an ad-free feed. With behind-the-scenes videos and mini-episodes accompanying the main show, I can guarantee you'll absolutely love the bonus content and perks awaiting you in the Grey History community. So, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you want to secure yourself more Grey History, then please support the show on Patreon. You can cancel any time, but for as little as $2 a regular episode, you can help promote history that isn't black and white, you can binge hours of additional grey history content, and potentially you can win the respect of your friends and family by showing off your niche 18th century history knowledge, all while winning a round of free drinks. So don't wait, Google Grey History Patreon or click the link in the show notes. I look forward to welcoming you personally. With his invasion plans rejected, what about Du Maurier's efforts to have the December Decree repealed? What about his efforts to soothe tensions with the Belgians by reversing the expansion 
of revolutionary administration. On this issue, de Maurier held nothing back. He warned the government that the sacred law of freedom and equality could not be preached like the Quran with a sabre in hand. Furthermore, he advocated that constitutional and religious reforms were matters of sovereignty, sovereignty which belonged to the Belgian people and not their French occupiers. Finally, he proclaimed that the French must not and could never be conquerors, and warned that the December decree would result in rebellion, civil war, and ultimately the Austrian reconquest of Belgium. De Maurier had promised the Belgians freedom and liberty, and so he fought on their behalf for their right to self-determination. However, once again, the general came up short. While the foreign minister, Lebrun, was sympathetic to de Maurier's position, the deputies of the convention were not. The convention had a variety of reasons to enforce its December decree. From their perspective, it was just good policy, solving a range of financial and political questions in one simple move. Surely the best way to secure the revolution abroad was through enacting the same just, wise and equitable measures which had been introduced in France. Who would oppose the abolition of privileges, the rationalisation of government and the regulation of the Catholic Church? Who would resist the seizure of underutilised church property to fund the necessary war of universal liberty? Indeed, who would object to such obviously fantastic measures? Who but a counter-revolutionary? For the most radical deputies of the convention, for the deputies who already distrusted and in some cases outright denounced de Maurier, what they saw was not a general lobbying on behalf of the rights of a neighbouring people, but one scheming on behalf of some yet-to-be-exposed conspiracy. In an environment characterised by belief in sinister plots and secret cabals, it appeared to the radical Jacobins that the general was pushing an agenda that was not advantageous to the revolution in Belgium. Instead, it appeared as if he was championing the interests of foreign nobles, priests, and well-to-do citizens. It seemed like the Girondin-aligned general was colluding with the local elites, just like his Girondin allies did back in France. And this brings us to the key question of this episode. What exactly was de Maurier up to? Given de Maurier's eventual actions, many historians with Jacobin sympathies see an ambitious man who was up to some good-for-nothing schemes. They see a general who was masking his own interests with the use of revolutionary language. Historian George Lefebvre, for example, states that de Maurier was pursuing his own economic and political policies because the general hoped to have himself installed at the head of a newly independent Belgium. That's right. Lefebvre accuses de Maurier of promoting Belgian interests in an effort to position himself as the leader of an independent republic or principality. Lefebvre writes, Not content to make himself financially independent, 
he tried to treat the Belgians with care to pave the way for his candidacy should they obtain an independent government. Here, the war was less than a year old, and already a Bonaparte was knocking at the door. With his plans endangered, de Maurier hurried back to Paris on January 1, but he obtained nothing. Whether as a prince or as a military dictator, the accusation that de Maurier sought to make Belgium his own personal fiefdom is one levelled by many of his opponents. They see de Maurier's advocacy on behalf of Belgian institutions and estates and his gentle treatment of the Catholic Church as proof of both self-interested conspiracy as well as calculated compromise with the counter-revolution. Given the existing claims as to potential secret agreements with the retreating Prussians from months earlier, and given the general's future actions, you can see why this mud has a tendency to stick. But it is noteworthy that many conservative historians disagree with this assessment of what motivated de Maurier. Instead, they see a general who understood the political realities of the situation on the ground. Historian Adolf Thiers, for example, claims that de Maurier recognised, better than any deputy in Paris, the true desires of the Belgian people. Thiers states that while the Belgians were eager for a revolution, they did not desire one that was anywhere near as radical as that which had occurred in France. The Belgians were not ready to abolish their traditional estates and they certainly had no interest in reforming the Catholic Church, let alone seizing its assets and replacing its priests. Understanding this, de Maurier attempted to devise policies which enabled the creation of a democratic revolution in Belgium, but one that was conservative enough to enjoy widespread popular support. Historian Simon Sharma agrees with this assessment, and has a far more sympathetic view to what de Maurier was trying to achieve. Sharma claims that de Maurier correctly identified that the revolution's policies were fast transforming a potential ally into an unnecessary enemy, and defends de Maurier's actions with conviction. Historian Simon Sharma writes, His plan, following Jemap, was to create an independent Belgian Republic that would deny the southern Netherlands to the Austrians while not provoking the British into war. This meant supporting the more conservative of the two Belgian aspirant political groups, the statists, against the Democratic Republicans. This was a calculated decision to co-opt the Belgian elite who had led the revolt against the Austrians and avoid alienating the majority of the population by extending French anti-clericalism to one of the most fervently pious Catholic populations in Europe. It was, in fact, the only policy that had any chance of attaching Belgian loyalties to France, since, as de Maurier understood, the rebellion against Austria had been fuelled by the province's determination to protect traditional institutions against imperial reforms. But to the militants in the convention, it looked suspiciously like a lingering beyond compromise with the counter-revolution. De Maurier was accused of wanting to create his own military and political base by selling the liberation of Belgium short, 
repudiating the true indigenous revolutionaries and intriguing with local aristocrats, priests and army contractors. His proposed native Belgian army, for example, was to be financed by a loan from the clergy, produced on the understanding that they would not be subjected to French clerical legislation. To de Maurier, this seemed like a sensible compromise. To Cambon and his critics in the convention, it was flagrant evidence of a Caesarist plot. So, what we have here is two fundamentally different views on what motivated de Maurier. On one hand, his defence of the Belgian estates and his attempts to protect the local church were all part of a campaign to see himself installed as Belgium's new leader. On the other hand, some historians argued that de Maurier understood that provocative French policies would result in the Austrian reconquest of the territory and that the only way to solidify the revolution in Belgium was through moderation and respect for local traditions and customs. In the episode extra for this episode, we'll be unpacking this debate further, as well as diving into some of the political divisions within Belgium, which complicated the situation for both the French and de Maurier in particular. To give a hint of what we'll be discussing, I would point out that there is no reason why both of these rationales for de Maurier's actions can't be true simultaneously. Whatever his true motivations, de Maurier failed in his efforts to have the aforementioned traditions and customs respected. Upon departing Paris, the general left near empty-handed. Yes, the war minister Pache would eventually be dismissed, and yes, he could once again supply his own troops as he saw fit. But there would be no immediate invasion of Holland, and most importantly, revolutionary administration would still occur in Belgium. Critically, however, de Maurier had managed to convince the Executive Council to delay the implementation of the December Decree. Now, this may sound like a win, but it wasn't. You see, the postponement of revolutionary administration merely created more headaches for de Maurier, both in Belgium and in France. In Belgium, the locals were hardly placated by this development. They wanted a repeal of the December Decree. That is what de Maurier had promised, and that is what he had failed to achieve. As a result, the territories continued to spiral towards open rebellion. On the 8th of January, 1793, representatives from Brussels, Antwerp and other major communities convened in Brussels. Here, they crafted a manifesto which rejected the principles and laws of the French Revolution. In fact, they even repudiated the rights of man, one of the core ideological pillars of the revolutionary movement. Incensed at French overreach, the liberators were reminded that the Belgians had been promised no intervention in constitutional or religious affairs. Furthermore, they were reminded of the supremacy of the Belgian people in matters of their own sovereignty. In a stinging rebuke of the French, the Belgians even went as far as accusing the French of violating their sacred rights and sovereignty, a claim which challenged the very core of French propaganda, 
which claimed that France intended to selflessly liberate the oppressed peoples of Europe. As the weeks passed in January, the situation only deteriorated further, with support for both the French and a Republican revolution declining by the day. It was this deterioration which led some French, including the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Le Bras, to give up on the idea of an independent Belgium. While the idea of a Belgian Republic had once considerable cross-faction support, it now seemed impossible. Throughout January, many in the French government lent their support to the annexation of Belgium. Only through the direct incorporation of the territory could an Austrian reconquest be prevented and civil strife subdued. As such, the convention finally decided to annex the territory. The dream of an independent Belgium was postponed for another time. But from the perspective of de Maurier, the situation wasn't just getting worse in Brussels. It was also getting worse in Paris. De Maurier's success in having the December decree delayed infuriated some members of the National Convention. Remember, according to historian Simon Sharma, the Convention had passed the December decree in part to prevent de Maurier from pursuing his independent policies. This had also been a motivation to centralise purchasing of supplies within the War Ministry, as well as consolidating monetary matters within the Treasury. Yet, despite the Convention having passed a decree, despite the deputies clearly trying to curb the General's autonomy, de Maurier was still somehow managing to find ways around this. The General had convinced the Executive Council, specifically the Foreign Affairs Minister Le Bras, to delay the decree's implementation. And this delay was unacceptable. Furthermore, to the most radical Jacobins of the Convention, the General and his Girondin allies in the Ministry were not just ignoring clear instructions, but they were deliberately circumventing the will of the Convention and, by association, the will of the people. This development was outrageous. It smelt of Girondin conspiracy, and so the sponsors of the decree and the most radical elements of the Convention set about rectifying the situation. By the end of January, they had forced the immediate implementation of the December decree and had charged commissioners with ensuring that its contents were enforced. Throughout the first months of 1793, these commissioners did just that, putting them in direct conflict with not only the local Belgians, but also members of de Maurier's army. As the convention's men vigorously enforced the revolution's laws, including the seizure of church assets, more and more Belgians became incensed by the French occupation. For a nation already on the brink of revolt, this sacrilege was an affront which could not be ignored. Yet, as alluded to moments ago, friction existed not just between the commissioners and the locals, but also between the French agents and members of the French military. Officers of de Maurier's staff knew full well their general's desires not to antagonise the Belgians, and thus had only implemented certain French policies in a half-hearted manner. The Convention's men threatened French officers with arrest if they didn't implement the policies of Paris, 
Of course, this approach not only worsened relations between Paris and Brussels, but it also further exacerbated tensions between de Maurier and the convention. No general likes his officers threatened with arrest. So, what we have here is a complete and utter mess. The Belgian people, having once welcomed their French liberators with smiles and applause, had decided the army of liberty was a little too illiberal. Forced constitutional and religious reforms had brought the territory to the brink of revolt. The liberators had outstayed their welcome. Likewise, the French had grown tired of their generous and benevolent attitude towards their Belgian neighbours. Forgetting their passion for popular sovereignty, French politicians decided to pursue their own domestic interests and embraced annexation in lieu of true self-determination. On top of it all, both sides were riddled with division, just as rebellion and civil war seemed imminent. Not only were the Belgians divided over how to respond to the French, but so too were the French themselves. The Convention and de Maurier were operating with completely different objectives, and serious tensions were emerging between the national government and its army in the field. As I said, a complete and utter mess. And it was in this chaotic environment that developments in the capital changed everything. At the start of February 1793, the French National Convention declared war on England and Holland. As Belgium simmered on the brink of revolt, and as tensions rose between the Convention and de Maurier, the war had been expanded in the most consequential manner. Everything had changed, and the history of Europe would never be the same again. Thank you for listening to episode 53, The Advance of France. In the next episode, we'll be covering a shocking and monumental case of treachery. We'll also be unpacking the entry of England and Holland into the Revolutionary War. The episode extra for this episode will be my unscripted thoughts and analysis on the predicament of de Maurier and the historical analysis around his motivations. Also, for all patrons of the show, if you haven't listened to it yet, do make sure you check out episode 52, The Corsican Revolution Part 2. Finally, don't forget to check out the behind the scenes video explaining my plans for the next several episodes. As always, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you're finding it entertaining, if you're finding it educational, then help do your part to ensure that there's more Grey History waiting for you tomorrow. Gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content, a range of behind-the-scenes perks, and of course, an ad-free feed by supporting the show on Patreon. Joining the community costs as little as $2 per regular episode, and it's the best way that you can secure yourself more grey history. For those on the true revolutionary tier, that's the $5 per regular episode tier, episode 54, It's Treason Then, is waiting for you right now. Thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon, including the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy and Charles. Thank you for listening, stay safe and have a great day.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 